The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they, kept in the, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. And it's pretty interesting, just about everything you need to know about Christianity is right here in this passage this morning. Who is Jesus? Where did he come from? What was his purpose in life? What did he want to accomplish? What is up with the Old Testament? This, the first half of this big book. How should Christians read the Old Testament? How should we respond to Jesus and his teaching? So how should we listen to him or how should we treat Jesus and his teaching? All of that is in today's text, okay? And I want to be honest with you. I feel a little bit like a colorblind man trying to describe for you the beauty of a rainbow this morning. This is one of the most remarkable texts in all of Scripture, and I found myself for a day staring at a blank notebook. And then I found myself for another day staring at a blank computer screen as I searched for words to describe it to you this morning. And then finally, yesterday about noon, I said, I got to stop thinking and stop reading and start writing or I'm not going to have anything good to say tomorrow. This text really did me over this week. Here's what's going on. All of the hubbub going around in Jesus' day revolved around this question. Who is Jesus? And that's a really funny question because Jesus was a local. People knew him. They knew his mom, and they knew his brothers, and they knew his sisters. It wasn't confusing. Jesus was a poor Jewish man, the son of a carpenter from Bethlehem. 
He had been driven out of his hometown by Herod's murderous decree to kill every child under two years old to try to snuff out the Messiah. And then he grew up in a poor, ill-repute town called Nazareth. So in one sense, understanding who, who Jesus is was as simple as checking out his lineage and, checking, and talking to Mary and seeing his brothers and going to his dilapidated, run-down house, seeing his family, seeing their impoverished conditions. He wasn't educated in the high, higher academies. So part of it, just knowing Jesus, was just checking him out. But then, when Jesus was around 30 years old, he started his public ministry. We've been studying most of his public ministry these past seven months here at Sacred City. And something has been made really plain to us is that Jesus was more than this humble carpenter's son. Jesus was more than just a normal man. Normal men speak to storms. We curse them and yell at them, right? But when Jesus spoke to a storm, the storm recognized his voice and came to heal like a rebuked dog. The storm, right? Normal men are powerless when confronted with disease. That's one that frustrates us as men who desire to be strong, right? We are powerless when we're confronted by disease. But Jesus could speak to rotting flesh, and the rotting flesh could hear his voice, and the rotting flesh recognized his voice and responded by returning to health. Normal men lose arguments, and every wife said, very rarely, right? Okay, no, you, you didn't say amen, so okay. Normal men lose arguments. Jesus never lost an argument. He was full of wisdom, and his authority was unmatched by any man in human history. So word began to quickly spread that there's something unique about this Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, we know who he came from, Joseph and Mary and where he lived, and he was poor, but there's something unique about him. So this question keeps spinning around, who is Jesus? No, 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 like, who is Jesus really? Have you asked that question yourself? Have you wrestled with that question yourself? Who is Jesus really? Hopefully that's why you're here this morning. You want to know, who, who was Jesus? In the last chapter, chapter 8, Jesus has brought this question to a head. And he asks his disciples two questions. First, he says, who do people say that I am? And the going response was, you're one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? So it's not just enough to know what the masses say. He wants to make this personal. Peter, or the disciples specifically, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being a very punctual guy who likes to speak up, he said, you are the Christ. Meaning the long-awaited king who was, would restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus said, you got it, Pete. I am the Christ. But I'm the Christ, and this is the words of Jesus from chapter 8. But I'm the Christ who must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So the leaders of Israel, the people of God, are going to reject him. And I must be killed and after three days rise again. And then he says this, and anyone who would be my disciple must, quote, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
to the cross. This was a shocking revelation. We studied it a lot last week. The Christ who would suffer and die. Those things sounded juxtaposed to one another. The Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited king who would suffer and die. How could it be? This is the question that's bouncing around in their head now. How could Jesus reign in glory over all the cosmos if he was going to suffer and die? This teaching by Jesus was so shocking that Peter rebuked Jesus for his bad theology. An interesting encounter. Peter believed that the Christ would come triumphantly and would be the everlasting king who would conquer all of Israel's enemies and unite the world in an eternal kingdom. But then Jesus flips the script on Peter and rebukes Peter and tells him that his whole understanding of the Messiah was man-centered and not God-centered. The Christ is a king, the eternal king, but he will create his kingdom through a cross, not a sword. His kingdom will be inaugurated in weakness, not in glory. And anyone who follows the suffering king will suffer with him. So Jesus was saying, if your Christology is off, that's your theology of the Christ, Christ, your understanding of the Christ. If your Christology is off, your discipleship will be off. Or as we said last week, the direction and the destination of your life will be off. If you misunderstand Christ, your direction and destination in your life will be off. See, Peter wanted a Christ, but no cross. So now this question is looming over the disciples. How can this be? How can we bring these two concepts together? How can we have a suffering Christ? How can we have a crucified king? How can Jesus be the Christ if he's going to suffer and die? Now, why is this so hard to understand? This is what I said last week. I built it out a little bit last week. Because the disciples had a theology of glory. A theology of glory. A theology of glory says that what mankind needs from God is a little bit of help. And please hear me. What mankind needs from God is just a little bit of help. And when a person gets that little bit of help from God, their life will now consist of permanent growth patterns up and to the right. Happiness increasing, Comfort increasing. The concept is this. Having God in my life makes the circumstances of my life better. There are many churches across the world and even in our city today who are preaching this message and this is a false gospel. Now it's just a slight variant, right? Maybe you can't recognize it very often. Many people can't recognize it. But it's dangerous, They teach that if you accept Christ into your life, he will make you financially prosperous. He will grant you success in business. He will keep you from getting cancer. This is called a prosperity gospel, and it's called heresy. It's false. It's a lie. The prosperity gospel says that all suffering in this life is from the devil. And God wants you to live a healthy and wealthy and happy life in this life now. Now, you can pick out some Bible verses that kind of back that up. You just can't read the Bible and back that up. I hope you know there's a difference. You can pick out some Bible verses and back it up, but you can't read the Bible through and have that understanding. 
So Jesus here is rebuking Peter for having a similar concept, this theology of glory, that Jesus is going to make their life better right now. It's interesting too, just to throw this out there, that when Saul gets converted to Christianity and becomes Paul, when they, uh, God speaks to a man to go preach to Paul, and he says this, go tell Paul how much he's going to have to suffer for my sake. That's a great gospel message right there. Hey, listen, you were saved. I'm supposed to tell you how much you're going to suffer. <laughs> you ready? Right? That's what he says. Now, Jesus is opposing this theology of glory with a theology of the cross. Following Jesus is marked by suffering. Jesus said it like this. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And we need to hear that because, listen, suffering is coming to this country. I got to hear a man today or this last week, a guy in our network of churches of Acts 29. He's the only Acts 29 church planter in Turkey. He's preaching. He, all right, this will blow your mind. He was born in Galatia. You have a book in your Bible called Galatians, right? He was born in Galatia. He's preaching where the apostle Paul preached. And this is what, it is, this is what it's like in Turkey right now. There's, for every 20,000 unbelievers, there's one Christian. 20,000 to one. He's the only Protestant church within like 100 miles of where he's at. And they're under constant persecution. He publishes a blog. He gets death threats from Islam, Islamists, Muslims. He gets death threats, right? And that, that area, part of the reason we have the gospel in our country was because that country sent missionaries to us, right? Like the Bible sent the, wrote Galatians, right? Paul wrote Galatians from there. So that area was thriving with the gospel, was fruitful, and after years and years and years have denied the Christ, have denied the gospel, and now they're a mission field that we have to send people back to, and all the telltale signs are in our country right now that we're headed in the same direction. We're running as far as we can from God, and that will be to our detriment, right? So, it looks like on the horizon of where we are, suffering is coming to us. And if you don't have a theology of the cross, you won't know what to do with it when you get here and your boss sits you down and he tells you, you know, to make whatever the decision would be, Jesus or your job, which could be coming, right? Or don't put this on Facebook or you lose your job. Or many, I'm not even going to go into that this morning because it could come in a million different ways. So when God, when Jesus is saying, when he's pushing against this theology of glory, he's saying it's going to be difficult, it's going to be tough, and you've got to have to understand this theology of the cross. See, in the theology of the cross, God uses suffering in our lives for our good. When we, are, when we suffer, we are, as one scripture says, partaking in the sufferings of Jesus. Suffering is not good in itself, but God uses suffering as a means of making us more like Jesus. So under the sovereign hand of God, all suffering in this life serves only to make us more holy and eventually heaven sweeter. But what we're about to see today, a theology of glory doesn't die quickly. It's not a one conversation and then we walk away going, oh yeah, I just, oh now I have a theology of the cross. 
Theology of the glory doesn't die quickly. Even those of us who hold tightly to the cross of Jesus can be tempted to, to doubt when suffering hits us. See, when suffering hits us, this is what the devil does. The devil whispers in our ear a theology of glory, and he says things like this. You must have done something to deserve this. God is punishing you for your sins. If you would have prayed more, you wouldn't be sick. If you would have read your Bible more, you wouldn't have so much drama in your life. This would have never happened if you were just a little bit better. This is the theology of glory. See, in a theology of glory, suffering only comes to people who've done something wrong. And if that be the case, how could Jesus ever suffer? If Jesus was perfect and God only punishes those who are doing things wrong, how could Jesus, the perfect son of God, suffer and die? See, Jesus is trying here to make, help the disciples make sense of their suffering that's coming, the rejection that's coming, the persecution that's coming. He's teaching them the theology of the cross, and today he's about to give three of them, and all of us by extension, an amazing preview of the coming attractions. Let's look in chapter 9, verses 1. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him. So Jesus teaches them about theology of the cross. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And he says after six days, he takes them up on this mountain. He took with him Peter, James, and John. So all the disciples don't get to experience this. Jesus has a select few. And he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no on earth could bleach them. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of 9,000 foot Mount Hermon. And there he's transfigured before them. Now what does that mean? I struggled a lot this week with what the heck does this mean? Well, we can kind of see what it means. Right there before their eyes, Jesus begins to radiate, right? Like lightning exploding from his insides, his clothes become wider than anything they've ever seen before. They just don't even know how to describe it. They're struggling for words. They're like, he's glowing, and his clothes are whiter than anybody could bleach them. That's what they say. Now, what is going on? What's going on here? Well, that word, um, transfiguration, right? This is called the transfiguration. What the heck does that mean, transfiguration? Well, the Greek word is metamorpheo. Metamorpheo in the Greek. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from, right? Now, we know what metamorphosis is. One of the most common examples of metamorphosis is when a caterpillar experiences the enormous changes that remake it into a butterfly. So metamorphosis is literally to change form. Like a caterpillar changes its form from larvae into a butterfly, from kind of gross to glorious, right? That's a metamorphosis. That's a transfiguration. 
And that's what's going on here. Jesus is undergoing a transformation, a metamorphosis. And suddenly, the eternal glory that had been hidden and veiled in his flesh came bursting forth, providing a momentary, tangible sign that he truly was the Christ. This is unbelievable. Every Christmas season, every Advent season here at Sacred City, we sing the popular hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I wanted to sing it this week, but it would have been kind of weird. It was written by Charles Wesley, and one of the lines in the song says this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh. God was veiled in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus is 100% God, but, the, but there's a veil over it. On the top of this mountain, on the top of Mount Hermon, this 9,000-foot peak, these three men, Peter, James, and John, get to see the veil crack open for a moment. What is this? Now, this words just begin to fit. What is, the veil cracks open, glory pours out. What is that? What is this glory? It's nothing short than the very heart of the universe. It's been called the meaning of life, the beautific vision, the chief end of man. It's the bright light at the end of the tunnel. It's the ultimate love that we all want and crave to be caught up in. And Jesus here isn't pointing to it. Like every other great philosopher and every other religious leader in the world, from Gandhi to Buddha, they all point to the glory and say, that's where you find it. Jesus isn't like any of them. Jesus isn't pointing at the glory. Jesus is the glory. The heavenly glory is coming out of him. He's being transfigured right before their eyes into the very thing their hearts have always longed for. Why does the glory of sex never satisfy? Because you're reaching for something beyond sex. You're reaching for the glory of God. Why does the glory of money never satisfy? Because your heart was built for a bigger glory, the glory of Christ. Why does comfort and vacations, why do they never provide you exactly what you're looking for? Because the glory of God is what they're pointing towards. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why? Because Jesus is the glory. All the world religions say, this is the way to happiness. And they point to it. Listen, even the Old Testament, if you're reading the Old Testament, Moses Abraham, Elijah, they're all pointing to the glory. They're all pointing to a way of happiness. But Jesus doesn't point to it. Jesus opens up and he says, I am it. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the glory. And we hear that, we're like, okay. 
But what I want us to see, I don't want us to take this in as theological truth this morning. Only. It is theological truth. We need to receive it into our mind. But I want it to go down and affect us, our affections. Like we are seeing it. Like we're on Mount Hermon. And all of a sudden, lightning is like coming out of Jesus. Like everything we've always wanted is actually coming out of Jesus. Now, I pray that happens this morning. And what's interesting here, it, this, is, this is where we're going to get, it's going to get deep. I'm just going to say, you, you might not get all this, but I want to give it to you because it's so important, all right? Every other world religion, including the Jewish religion or the Hebrew religion and the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, is always pointing to the glory. And Jesus is now on the top of the mountain, not pointing to the glory, but he is the glory. And Mark, the author here, wants us to go back in the Old Testament and make some key connections, okay? Mark is showing us that Jesus is the ultimate Moses who leads his people out of slavery and into the worship of God. Now, I'm going to make some big connections here. First off, in verse 2, it says, after six days. Just why would they include that? Why would he include that after six days? Moses was on top of the mountain for six days when he met with God in the Old Testament, okay? Jesus is up on a mountain. Moses was up on a mountain when that happened, right? Up on a mountain, the Shekinah glory, what is that? That's what the glory I'm talking about. They call it the Shekinah glory. Came down on the mountain and rested there. In our text here, we see a cloud is going to come down on the on the mountain, and we're going to hear a voice speak. On the voice in the mountain, a voice spoke. Hear a voice in the mountain with Jesus, a voice speaks. On the mountain, Moses saw the glory of God, actually saw a piece of it, and his face was shining. Jesus is shining. Mark is showing us something significant is happening on this mountain that completes what was going on in the Old Testament. Listen, on the top of that mountain in the Old Testament, if you read it in Exodus, Moses, the, the, the glory of God in this cloud rests on the mountain, and everybody freaks out. Everybody gets terrified, and they're like, oh, I ain't going, you go. And Moses pulls up his pants, and he walks up the mountain, and he goes to meet God, and he goes and he speaks to God, and he says, God, show me your glory. And this is what God says to him on the mountain. You cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. But what God does then is God hides Moses in a cleft in the rock and allows him to catch a glimpse of God's backside as he passes by. And that backward glance at the glory of God was so intense that when Moses returned to the people of Israel, his face was shining with the glory of God, and the people were so freaked out that Moses began to wear a veil over his face. Right? This is so intense. But what, we want, what he wants us to see is Moses, when Moses' face was shining like, it was like reflecting glory like the moon reflects the glory of the sun. Right? The moon has no light of its own. It reflects the glory of the sun. Moses had no light of his own. He was reflecting the glory of God. But Jesus is more glorious than Moses. He doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. 
John would later write of this experience in his, in his gospel, and he said this, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John said, we saw it, we beheld it, we caught a glimpse of the glory, that Shekinah glory that was on top of the mountain with Moses, we saw it in Jesus. And it wasn't a reflected glory. It was the glory of God itself. You see the Shekinah glory all through the Old Testament. God would lead his people through this cloud and through this pillar of fire. And that was the Shekinah glory. And look what happens here. And there appeared to them, verse 4, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, so... Now we got Moses and Elijah on top of the mountain. Now, I want to just say, this is pretty interesting. The philosophers can call this the access mundi, okay? Something opened in the universe and out pops Elijah and Moses, all right? And Jesus, now listen, what's interesting here is Elijah was the prophet from the Old Testament who didn't die. He was scooped up into the heavens, right? And Moses represents all of the law. The Ten Commandments. He represents all of that. And now we have Elijah and Moses here. And listen, the glory is shining out of Jesus. And I imagine in my mind, Peter's expecting everybody to go, like, what's about to happen right now? We got, the th we got three big hitters up right now, right? Three theological big hitters from the Old Testament, or two from the Old Testament, and Jesus, it's about to go down right now. I don't know what's about to happen, but it's going to be a show. And what does Peter do? Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, that means teacher, it's good that we're all here. Right? <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> and then he says this, let us make three tents, and that word actually is tabernacles. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, just to clear up, do we remember this? this? This is the eyewitness testimony of Peter, right? Mark is writing it down, but it's the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And look how Peter speaks of his own experience. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter's like, okay, this is not my shining moment. I'm giving my testimony here. So we get up there, and I see these three big hitters, right? Or the two Old Testament. Now, Jesus is obviously a big hitter. So I'm like, let's make a temple, a tabernacle for all three of you guys. You guys are probably all three on the same level, right? God's used all three of you. You're all three kind of prophets. Uh, let's make a tabernacle. And he goes, oh, I was freaked out. I had no idea what I was saying. Like, he literally just says that. Like, I, if I'm telling my testimony, I just leave that out. I don't mention that part, right? He just, no, I said this, and I was totally freaked out of my mind, so I don't know why I said it, right? That's pretty much what he does. Now, this is Peter. Peter's like, the glory, right? The heart of the universe, the meaning of all life. Let's build three tabernacles and lock it up inside a building like we used to in the Old Testament. Moses gets one, and Elijah gets one, and now, Jesus, you get one too, So we're now back to this question again. Who is Jesus? Is he just like Moses? And is he just like Elijah? Or is he something different? And, look at, and listen to this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's one of the prophets. I think he's the Christ. Guess whose turn it is to answer now? The question, who is Jesus? It's God's turn. 
from the Shekinah glory cloud. God answers the question, who is Jesus? And look what he says. And a cloud overshadowed them. That's the glory cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is the, this is the voice of God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. But Jesus only. Let's just break this apart piece by piece. First, God says, this is my beloved son. So in the beginning we said, who is Jesus? He's the son of Mary. He's the son of Joseph, adopted son of Joseph. But God is here saying, yes, he is that, but he's also my son. What does that mean? Listen how the great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it. As Jesus Christ is a child in his human nature, he is born, begotten of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He is truly born as certainly as a child as any other man has ever lived upon the face of the earth. He is thus in his humanity a child born. So he is 100% man. But as Jesus Christ is God's son, he is not born, he's given begotten of his father from all worlds, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the father, the doctrine of eternal affiliation of Christ, so the, the doctrine that Christ is God, is to be received as an undoubted truth of our holy religion. But I love this. But as to any explanation of it, no man should venture thereon. For it remaineth among the deep things of God, one of those solemn mysteries indeed, into which the angels dare not look, nor do they desire to pry into it, a mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, for it is utterly beyond the grasp of any finite being. As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean, as a finite creature to comprehend an eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God at all. If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, then he would not be divine. Here Spurgeon is showing us the two natures of God, right? The, the two identities, the Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph and Jesus as the son of God. That he is 100% man while at the same time being 100% God. As God, Jesus existed before the foundations of the world. As man, he was born into history. So when Jesus is peeling back and showing his glory, he's just showing what he's always looked like from all eternity. But this glory has been veiled in his human flesh. Jesus is here revealed as the son of God. He's the ultimate Moses who doesn't just lead us out of slavery and delivers us the law of God like Moses did. Jesus will accomplish the ultimate exodus by delivering God's people from their slavery to sin by accomplishing all the law of God in their place. Listen to what Moses says. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. What does God say here? This is my son. 
Listen to him. He's showing everything that Moses pointed to, Jesus is. Everything Elijah pointed to, Jesus is. Jesus is not on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. And he also signifies that by, guess what? The glory cloud, the voice speaks, Moses, Elijah, gone. Jesus remains. The Son of God. What's he showing? All of the Old Testament is wrapped up in Jesus. And he doesn't just cancel the Old Testament. Some people think, well, I don't need to read the Old Testament. God's canceled. He doesn't cancel it. He's fulfilled it. And we need to know it. We need to go back and learn the story and read it. Later, when Jesus is resurrected, he returns and he walks this earth with his disciples. And he says in Luke 4, this is what it says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And now here in this moment, Jesus stands up and says, I am here. The glory of God is here. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Moses was just a pointer. He was pointing forward to Jesus. Elijah was just a pointer. He was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus isn't a pointer. Jesus is the point. He's the son of God. He is God's rescue plan. He is the one who will save God's people from their sins. But he's going to do that through the cross and not through his glory. It's interesting. Jesus, as it were, kind of gets on the mountain and cracks open the veil. And they see the glory and they freak out. And then what? He covers it back up. See, this is a coming attraction, right? This is a preview. He's, he's not there in glory. He's not come, he didn't come in glory. He's got to go to the cross, and he's trying to teach his disciples, I am all glorious. I am the point of everything. I am the meaning of life. But right now, I'm going to stay veiled because I have to go to the cross, and you have to go with me. And this brings a lot of confusion. Look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Jesus is like, all right, guys, this isn't going to make sense until I raise from the dead. This is what they say. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, What does rising from the dead mean? Now, when we read this, we're like, duh. But it's really not like that. And it's kind of like, have you guys ever seen the movie with Bruce Willis, The Sixth Sense? If you have, if not, I'm going to ruin it for you right now. Uh, It's a pretty good movie. But what makes this movie special is the ending completely reinterprets the rest of the movie. Okay? Uh, Once you see it, you can never watch it the same way again, right? You're watching it, I see dead people, and they're like, what is this going on here? And then this whole interaction, and there's all this dialogue, and then you get to the very end, and I'm going to just tell you, okay? Sorry if you haven't seen it. You get to the very end, and you find out 
Bruce Willis is dead. He's been dead the whole movie. And, and then you go back and you watch it and you're like, oh, that's what he meant by that statement. Oh, now, oh, oh, oh. And the whole movie makes sense in a different way when you go back and watch it the second time. And that's kind of how it is for us today, right? We get Jesus died and then he was resurrected. So we go, when he says a statement like that, don't tell anybody until I'm dead, until I, re I rise again. We think, how could they miss it? How, how could they not see what he was talking about there? But for Peter and James and John, they had been taught all their life that there would be a general resurrection at the end of history. There would be... An, General revelation of the just at the end of history, all the good people would rise, all the God's people would rise up and they'd be resurrected at the end of time. So they were, they, they were when Jesus said uh, death and resurrection, they're just thinking he's talking about at the end of time. He's gonna die and then he, all the good people are gonna rise at the end of time, just like everybody else, just like Moses and just like Elijah. So they can't get it through their head. They couldn't put these pieces together until Jesus actually appeared to them not in a general resurrection, but in a very specific res resurrection that he put, back, he put on flesh and he walked on, on the earth again after his death. But then when you go back and you, you know, and remembering all of Jesus' teaching to them was like re-watching the sixth sense, right? Now they're like, when they're telling the story, they're like, oh, that's what he meant. Like he's talking about actually his death and resurrection. Like right now he's gonna come back. Now I get it. Now I get it. Bruce is dead. Okay. It makes sense to me. Right? So the disciples are kind of mulling these things over in their head here. What does he mean? He's going to rise from the, he's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. They're trying to take in Jesus' teaching and everything they know from the Old Testament and they're trying to figure it out. And the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, says this. Well, let's just, so this is what they do. They ask this first. And they asked him, why do the scribes, some religious teachers, say that first Elijah must come? Okay, they're, they're trying to make sense of what Jesus is teaching them. And they, they go back and they grab hold of this Old Testament text. And they ask Jesus this question about Elijah. They just saw Elijah. So they're thinking, I just saw Elijah. Old Testament says Elijah must come. Maybe this is significant. Jesus, what's it mean by Elijah? Malachi chapter 4 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And they're fresh off this encounter with Elijah, so they're thinking, this is it. Maybe this is the day of the Lord. We just saw the glory of God. Something big's happening. So they knew that Elijah came first, then came the kingdom. And Jesus says to them, Yep, you're right. Elijah does come first. But then Jesus throws this little Bible study question back at them in verse 12. And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Here's his Bible study question. And how is it written of the Son of Man, this king of the universe, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, we all know from last week, if you were here, they have no idea. They've never brought the Son of Man and the Christ together. They don't think the Christ will suffer. And Jesus is saying, in the Old Testament, go back and read your Bible. It promises the Son of God and the Christ will suffer. And, and indeed, they do do that later on. And they go back and they find Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55. And they find Psalm 22. And they find all this text that promised that the Messiah would suffer. Now, Jesus says, 
Elijah has come. He goes on and says, Elijah has come, and they did with him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What the? What is he talking about? It's, we actually don't know in this text, but if you go to Matthew, the parallel passage in Matthew gives us a very clear understanding, and it says this. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. When angels showed up, if you remember, to Elizabeth, and angels prophesied the birth of her son, and you're going to name him John the Baptist, the angels said this, he will minister in the spirit uh, and power of Elijah. That's prophesied over John the Baptist before he was born. So Jesus is saying, yes, Elijah does come first, and yes, Elijah has already come. That was John the Baptist, and how did it go for him? John the Baptist was rejected. John the Baptist was imprisoned. John the Baptist was eventually beheaded by Herod. See, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for suffering, for the road that's ahead, for the cross. He's saying, I am the glorious son of God, but I'm on my way to the cross. And if you're following me, so are you. So what is the good news about the theology of the cross? Let me show him how much he's going to suffer for my sake. Anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Listen, if you're wanting to find a religion that makes your life more comfortable here, Christianity is the wrong one. It's the wrong one. What's the good news of the theology of the cross? Jesus says, I will die, but I will rise again from death. See, a theology of glory gives you a little bit of help to live a healthy and happy life in the here and now. And people who believe it are forced to try to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of this life. But this life is as good as it'll ever get for them. A, theo a theology of the cross, the way of Jesus, promises death and resurrection. Jesus says, I will die, but I will come again. Romans 6, 5 says it this way. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection life like his. And it's not just talking about life after death. It's talking about life after life after death. We get a new body. We get a new earth. In the theology of the cross, we give up seeking glory in this life. And God promises us that we will get to see the very heart of the universe. More than that, we will be made like him. We will see Jesus as he is now, glorified in heaven, in his full unveiled glory. If we could catch a glimpse of the glory of God right now as he is, I think we would melt. And every, when we see the glory, when our new renewed eyes catch glimpse of the Jesus Christ in glory, every single sacrifice, every single painful encounter we've had here on this earth from misunderstandings that bring separation to beheadings, every single piece of suffering will only increase our enjoyment of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And we, in that moment, will share 
in a metamorphosis like his. For those of you in this room that are doubting, come on. A human being opens up. The light of the universe breaks forth. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. You really think that's going to happen? Well, let me just do this. Hmm. Metamorphosis. A little egg gets laid, turns into a larva, grows roughly a thousand times its size into this little larva, then eats, 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 spins this little cocoon, does this little thing, turns to liquid. Turns to liquid. A few weeks later, butterfly. Worm, liquid, butterfly. That happens. That happens. Like, we see butterflies and we're like, that thing used to be a worm. And then it turned to water. Then it became a butterfly. And our kids go, oh, okay. And then we go, I'm a human, I'm in the flesh. One day I'll be made like God in the image of God. And we go, nah, that's a little out there. Did, if I threw a level of liquid in there, would it make more sense? Because guess what? When you get put in the ground, guess what you become? Right? Fertilizer. So there we go. You got your middle stage. Flesh, fertilizer, glory. Praise Jesus. For those of us, that's the glory. For those of us who embrace Jesus Christ by faith, our transfiguration is coming. This is the caterpillar stage, man. 1 Corinthians 50, or 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 says this. I'm just going to read it. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't go in flesh. We've got to turn to liquid first. Nor does, the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you understand that metamorphosis that's going to take place, here's the next verse. If you understand that all of our suffering in this life is still leading us to this change of nature into glory, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything we do on this earth for good, no matter who's against us, no matter who calls us bigots or liars or whatever they call us, everything we do for good goes on to glory and we should keep our eyes on the glory this glimpse of Jesus, that's what's going to happen to us. 
We're in our caterpillar stage. Most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us are going to go to our liquid stage and then we'll go to our glory stage. And the glory that's set before us should inform and empower our life today where we're immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that nothing we do for Jesus is in vain. No dinner made. No carpet vacuumed. No table scrubbed. No door opened. No prayer prayed. No suffering felt over brokenness in our communities. Nothing is in vain if our hope's in the resurrection. Nothing. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Who is this that we get to serve? Who is this that we get to know? Father, we don't come to know you through our own works, through being good enough. Every other religion says you have to be good enough. You say Jesus was good enough. Jesus fulfilled the Ten Commandments for us. He's the better Moses. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the better Elijah. All our hope lies in Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that men and women across this room would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope of glory. And for the believers in this room, we struggle to believe that. We forget about the glory. We forget, you know, we, we, Paul, Paul said, our, my light and momentary afflictions in this life. We forget that they're light and momentary. We forget that the glory's coming. Would you encourage us? Would you give us strength in our faith this morning? And as we come as broken sinners who forget the glory, we forget our frame our weakness. We forget that we, we were called to carry a cross, not live in glory on this earth like kings, but to carry cross like our king. Father, would you remind us of that this morning as we eat this bread that's broken because our king was broken for us and we drink this cup of wine because your blood was spilled for us? Would you encourage us this morning? Would you produce repentance in our heart? Would you help us love our neighbors and love our family, even love our enemies like Jesus said? Because that's what you did to us. When we were enemies, you loved us. Thank you, Jesus. And you're powerful glorious name. I say amen.